Hey, welcome back. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're in session three of five sessions called Receive. And we talked about last session how men are receivers and we're on a journey to follow and be like the ultimate man, Jesus, which he did by receiving from his father and we do it by being refathered, refathered by Abba Father, and then we can start living as a son. This is session three. Uh, we're going to talk about transforming um, the four big themes of living like Jesus, the way of Jesus, are to receive, to transform, to huddle, and to lift. Transform means changing, improving, conforming to be more and more like Jesus. So we're looking at the essence of being a man, how to live it, how to forgive, how to be humble, um, how to overcome our insecurity, how to kill fear and pretending, and walk in the way of Jesus. Uh, my rookie year of football was with the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, we were training at Cal State Fullerton. I was one of uh, 50 rookies, only maybe 10 or 15 would make the team. The odds of my making the team were really slim. But after two days of practice, this little boy, eight years old, came up to me who had watched all of practice, and he said, can I carry your helmet for you to the locker room? And so I gave him my helmet, and he carried it half mile to the locker room. Next morning, he'd ridden his bike over, and he carried my helmet and pads out to practice field, watched two and a half hours, uh, carried it back. He was there for afternoon practice, same deal. Three days in a row, same little boy, carrying my stuff. And I look around, and I'm the only rookie that I can see. This is rookie camp. No veterans, just us rookies. Uh, I'm the only rookie with a personal equipment caddy thinking I'm a pretty big deal. And he says to me on the third day, hey, Jeff, can I ask you a question? I thought it would be a tip on how to throw the ball or an autograph. And I'm like, sure, yeah, whatever. Go ahead and ask. So he looks up at me in total seriousness, eight years old. Jeff, when do the good guys come to training camp? <laughs> And I was completely deflated, as I deserved. And he gave me two key lessons. Number one, he was doing the single greatest thing that a man can do, which is in the role model of Jesus. He was serving. Serving me. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So that's pretty cool. This little kid's reminded me that a true leader is a servant. But number two, with a little bit of humiliation, he gave me a reminder that I need to be humble. I am no one special. I don't deserve to have my helmet and pads carried. I, 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 there's no reason I should sign an autograph or think I'm a big deal. I am just a son of the king, and that's my identity. It's not that I'm a football player or I'm good or I'm bad or anything else. So that gift of humility and that role model of service are crucial to realizing what's the essence of a good man and how do we transform from what we've been to what we're going to be. That's God's work. Conform us to the image of Christ. So let's look at the essence of manhood. Pretty simply, it nets out to be Jesus. Uh, but the question is, who is Jesus these days? There's a lot of fabricated Jesus out there, uh, recreated, re-envisioned, re-imagined Jesus. Or is it the real Jesus? The exact man that walked on the earth for 33 years and intentionally died on the cross and rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God and plants his Holy Spirit inside of us and is still alive in that sense and will be the eternal ruling king. The one that is described as God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, and the eternal king. But I want to take a look at Jesus as a man. 
if you were in the other sessions, I talked about having spent an extended period of time in 2020 reading all through the Gospels and finding like 221 instances of how Jesus spoke, behaved, acted, treated people. What kind of man was he? And I saw that he was humble. He was dependent. He was always receiving from his father. In John 5, 19, he said, the son can do nothing apart from the father. He was totally humble and dependent and constantly receiving. That's the model for us as men. But what I also saw about Jesus was he was a friend. He called himself a friend, and he lived by friendship, and he built great friendships with the guys around him. In fact, he changed the world with 12 rascals who he turned into friends of one another. He sent them out two by two as friends. Jesus was into friendship. It's his way. We need it because we need the way of Jesus. He was committed to his friends. He was personal with his friends. He was in close proximity to his friends. He was consistent with his friends. He was honest with his friends. You can fill all these in. Committed, personal, proximity, consistency, honest, and he was open with his friends. He told them what was going to happen, even that he was going to be crucified. Here's another characteristic of Jesus. He was a champion for the underdog and a champion for comebacks. He would never give up on anyone. In fact, he saved one guy who'd lived his whole life bad as a thief, but at the last second, the guy humbled himself, and Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise today, proving we do not need to earn our salvation. We can't, and we don't need to prove our goodness. God adopts us when we accept Jesus. So he championed underdogs. He championed comebacks. He intentionally gathered and served his friends and he made friends out of people that no one would have expected, tax collectors, prostitutes, people that had really blown it and were uh, outsiders in the Jewish world. Jesus elevated the dignity of women, created in the image of God, equal to men, though men haven't always treated them that way. Not more equal, not less equal, not the same as, but part of the image of God, male and female, he made us. Jesus dignified the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery that they all wanted to stone. He valued her. He cherished her. He changed her life. He set her free, and he sent the other men packing. Jesus elevated the dignity of women. Jesus fearlessly faced blitzes, stonings, criticism, mocking, crown of thorns, beatings, and, of course, crucifixion. Satan, in the desert, faced him head on, and he quoted scripture right back at him. Jesus wouldn't compromise. He fearlessly faced blitzes and challenges. Jesus faced the failures of others, and he forgave them swiftly, and he restored them fully. Think about Peter who denied him three times. Jesus cooks a campfire for him on the beach, cooks him some fish, and says, dude, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then three times he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my flock, you're my man. I'm going to build the church on the faith that you've demonstrated. He affirmed Peter. He restored Peter. Uh, he was about recovery. I want you to underline this. Repent and apologize swiftly. Soon. As soon as you can. 
Go to God and say, I'm sorry, I want to turn around. Apologize not just to him, but to your wife or to your son or your daughter or someone at work, your parent, whoever it's going to be. Turn it around quickly and restore fully. Jesus had confidence in the Father, which gave him ultimate confidence, Father confidence. Uh, my last season of football, I was on the Philadelphia Eagles. I had been playing for the Seahawks. Uh, we lost a Sunday night game in overtime. I threw a pass to a friend of mine. Uh, unfortunately, his name was Ronnie Lott. He was on the other team. Um, we played together on the Niners, but he was on the wrong team that night. And uh, they beat us in overtime. I was cut two days later, mid-season, as a starting quarterback. And my son said a prayer, Dear God, please give Daddy a new team. I want him to be in the Eagles. Amen. He was six years old and didn't even know that the Eagles was a Philadelphia Eagle pro team. He wanted me to be on a team with the same name as his little league soccer team. But God has a sense of humor, too, and answers the faith of kids. And I got a call from the Philadelphia Eagles the next morning asking me to come join them because their starting quarterback had a broken leg, and Jim McMahon, their other quarterback, was getting hit a lot. So I got out to Philly, and four weeks later, we're flying to Houston to play on Monday Night Football. I've hardly had any practice. I don't know the system very well. It's not as disciplined a system as the 49ers where I played before, or even the Seahawks. So I have this weird feeling that I've never had before in the NFL as a quarterback. I have zero confidence that if I get put in the game that I'm going to play decently, that we'll win, that I can help us. I had no clue how it was going to go. Zero confidence. But there was something else that was really interesting and cool. I had zero fear. I was not afraid of whatever would happen. I knew that God had taken me through so many things and it solidified the fact that he loves me and I'm his son. That's my identity. My worth isn't wrapped up in this NFL thing. That I was like, hey, I'd rather not blow it and lose the game for us. That wouldn't be fun. Yeah, I'd be kind of embarrassed. But I was secure that I wasn't afraid of that. And shoot, we might have played great. But I had no clue how it would go. No confidence and no fear. You know why? A, because I'm secure in Christ more so than in the past. And B, I had a singular audience. I'm playing the game for God which makes you want to be even better, but not panic if you don't do well because he still loves you unconditionally. The audience of one, God, is the best. So I had a sense of God confidence, not that I would play great or the outcome would be good because God's not into circumstances as much as he's into the kingdom and he's into our character and our faith more so than an easy life. But God confidence Jesus explains it to us. In John 16, 33, I'll give you the NFL version. Jesus says, hey, in this world, you're going to get blitzed. But don't panic. I've overcome the blitz. Now, that's the NFL version. Here's scripture that says, I've told you all these things so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, blitzes. But take heart because I have overcome the world. We are anchored in our identity as sons of the king because of salvation and brotherhood with Jesus. So we have God confidence, which is way better than self-confidence. And I think you may have come across this passage, but the key is to live the truth of this passage. It's Philippians 4.13. It's the secret to contentment. It's the secret to being secure, overcoming your insecurity. And it's the secret to God confidence. Not self-confidence, God-confidence. Philippians 4.13 says, I can 
do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is written by the Apostle Paul, who faced more challenges and trials and blitzes than all of us combined. And he said, I can do all things and I can handle all circumstances through Christ who gives me strength. Helen Keller once spoke at a college campus. Great speech. Young woman raised her hand afterwards and said, may I ask a question? And Helen Keller said, sure. And uh, She said, I, I can't imagine being blind. Is there anything worse, Miss Keller, than, than being blind? And Helen Keller said, without missing a beat, oh, yes. It would be far worse to have your eyesight but lack vision. I said earlier that you and I are souls with a body. You're an eternal soul who will live forever, either without God, which is the choice many of us make, or with God, where he invites us and he pays the price through Christ for us to be his son or daughter and live for eternity. We are a soul. Do we have a vision for our soul? Do we have a vision for God the Creator? Do we have a vision for eternity and the paradise to come? Do we have a vision for the marriage that we'd like to have because of the husband we'd like God to make us be? For the family we'd like to raise? For the legacy we'd like to leave? For the difference for the kingdom of God we'd like to have? Do you have a vision for manhood in the model of Jesus? Or are you just trying to scrap together some sort of surviving life that looks impressive enough to your friends and makes you feel okay for the moment. Without vision, the people perish, it says in the scripture. Robert Lewis says that without a vision, a man is aimless or dangerous. Aimless, a lot of young men. Dangerous, a lot of young men. Aimless, more and more older guys, our generation. Dangerous, there's high suicide rates amongst older men these days. Depression rates, loneliness, turning to alcohol, drugs, chemicals, thrills, an affair, a new woman, a new experience, the pleasure of this, this world, addictive things. If we don't have a vision and we're not connected to God and don't know our identity, we don't know how to live manhood through, through a relationship with God. We're dangerous and aimless. But God made men for a purpose. He made us for mission. We're supposed to create. Made in his image, he's a creator. We're supposed to build. God built, we're supposed to build. God protects, we're supposed to protect. God is responsible for us. We're supposed to be responsible for ourselves and others. God provides for us. We're to be providers. God solves problems through Christ who reconciled mankind to him and will one day recreate the whole world and make everything right. All that is unjust will be made just. There will be no more tears. There will be peace. There will be joy. God solves problems and God conquers problems and conquers evil and conquers the devil and he conquers death. We need a vision of real and good manhood. Here's one that I mentioned Robert Lewis a couple times. He's a great mentor, um, influenced millions of men. Um, and he's right now, I think, the founder of Better Man and advancing this vision through many of us in the men movement uh, that real and good manhood follows four simple patterns of following God's word, protecting God's woman, 
women in general, and then when you get married, protecting that one wife. Excelling at God's work. Work is a good thing. God created it in the garden before the fall. And bettering God's world, whether you do it as a dad or a teacher or a coach or a worker or an employer, um, you're a steward to make this world a better place. Like my dad said to me, make a positive difference in this world. That's real good manhood, but it still begs a question. How do I do it? Because it's going to be a frustrating equation if I'm inspired and informed, but depending on my own resources, we all fall short. We eventually mess up. We got some serious vulnerabilities and sin problems. Um, our energy runs dry. We get impatient. We blow it. Well, the question of how to live it can be partly answered by looking back to when you were a kid trying to fly a kite. Remember getting a kite and you were super excited and you went outside and you made sure you had the string set up and the sticks were in it and it was all set up, but there wasn't much wind, so you uh, had a friend hold it and then you started running and pulling the kite and it would start rising, maybe 10 feet, 15, kind of wobbling from side to side, then you'd slow down hoping it would go up in the air and it would crash to the ground. It was a fruitless effort as you ran around huffing and puffing with a, a kite going 15 or 20 feet off the ground and then crashing again. But then a week later, there was an incredibly strong breeze. The wind was great that day. And you went out on a hill and you just barely held that kite up and the tension on the string and the wind caught it and it started to rise and you started letting that spool out and it went way high in the air. And it was a totally different experience because the wind was flying the kite instead of you pulling the kite. And that is a parable and a metaphor for how we try to do this being a man thing, this live the Christian life thing, this be a good man thing. We can't do it. We weren't made to do it. God is meant to be our wind. What we got to figure out is how to stay connected to the wind Make sure our string and our kite have the right attitude, the right pitch, and that they're placed in the wind so when God wants, he can make it fly. Think of that kite analogy. Connect and orient yourself to God, the wind, the Holy Spirit, Jesus' presence in us because we're adopted as sons. You know, before we do things, we have to be. We have to be a son. We have to receive and we have to huddle. Huddling means I'm going to be known by some other guys and I'm going to process my life as a team. I'm not going to go solo. So we need to be a son and we need to be known as a friend. Here's a diagram again of the journey that we're on from as is, the present version of me, to to be, an improved version of me. And of course, in eternity, we're going to be a perfected version of ourselves. But Jesus already sees who that is. God gives us credit for us because he applies the righteousness of Christ to us. We need to live from that identity and let it start coming out of us. And two of the practical ways we do that are, on the vertical part of that picture, we're continually receiving through a dependent connection with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Word of God, listening to God speak to us, Abba, Father, not just, oh, I'm having a quiet time, or I listened to a sermon, or I found some Christian principles, I want to try to apply them. No, God, what are you personally saying to me? I'm receiving from you. Jesus connected to his Father all the time, spent nights in prayer, got up early, went out in the wilderness, took a walk in the mountains, in the hills, sometimes with his friends, often alone. Continuous receiving. 
But at the same time, we have a horizontal relationship with a few, maybe even just a couple, close, deep, consistent, trusted, loyal friends who know you and you know them, and you huddle together. I call that meeting every week and talking about the most important stuff in your life. And through that friendship, which is the model Jesus set with his 12 friends who changed the world, huddling consistently, you, you are more self-aware because you're living in an objective setting with some guys who see the real you. You're processing things that you messed up with in the past or that you're thinking about doing in the future so that they go better. This is how we move from as is to to be. This is the way of Jesus. And the four big themes of this message receive are received, transform, that's the session we're in, huddle, and lift. So let's talk some more about transforming. John 15, verse 4 and 5, Jesus said it this way, live in me, dwell in me, hang out in me, think about me, depend on me, abide in me, and I will remain and abide in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, remember, Remaining means living, abiding, walking, depending, talking, aiming yourself at him and having him be the center of your life. Those who remain in me and I in them, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you because you're humble and surrendered, will produce much fruit, meaning love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, good things, courage, strength for others, unselfishness, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So receive means being with God, being like Jesus, and doing like Jesus because the Father's telling you. Transforming means you're conforming to the character of Jesus, Romans 8, 29. The purpose of life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That makes us better in every role of life. We renew our mind as a part of the way we're transformed, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Hey, if God loved you this much and gave you eternal life and forgave all your sin, then your sacrifice is to give him your body as a living sacrifice and your brain and your time and your energy and your assets and everything about you. Give it to God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed. Don't act like the world. Don't get conformed to the world in the way that you're seeing things on Twitter and in entertainment and at the workplace. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind as the Bible becomes your new software, your new operating system. But not just the words of the Bible, the words of the Father speaking to you directly what he's saying. So that's transforming, conforming to Jesus, renewing your mind. Huddling, that's being committed to some consistent and deep friendships and regularly connecting with them. So you can't have 50 best friends or five best friends. You got one or two, and you got to connect every week. That's friendship, brotherhood. And then lift is the way Jesus lived. He, he lifted the father. He lifted that woman at the well, her dignity. He lifted that woman caught in adultery. Uh, he lifted the people that he healed out of their paralysis and their blindness. Uh, he lifted the disciples from being fishermen to being fishers of men and living for the kingdom. Jesus encouraged. He lifted people's sights. He changed their mission. Manhood is not self-propelled. It's not self-confident. It's God-confident. Part of it comes from 
being free because you've been forgiven by God and you need to forgive yourself. If he's truly forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself for some things, guys. But then that'll set you free to forgive others because we're usually more judgmental to people about things that we have trouble with. So unless you're fully forgiven, you're going to have a hard time fully forgiving others. And without forgiveness, there won't be freedom. I cover this at length in the, in the book and have some stories. Uh, one about Josh, a guy whose mom was very harsh and not very loving to him and discouraging to him. And he was being quite frustrated by that as he became a young man until he realized that his mom had a very rough backstory and he thought about her childhood and what had happened to her. And it gave him empathy for her and he stopped holding her to this high standard and it made him gentler, more respectful, more loving and more forgiving to her. Improve their relationship. Steve Largent, his dad left him at six years old, left the family, didn't even connect to Steve again until Steve was in pro football, and his dad connected to ask for tickets, which Steve provided generously, including the hotel room for games. But the dad never initiated a, a relationship, and he never apologized. And at one point, some of the bitterness in him was spotted by his wife, and especially by a friend named Marty that he met with every single week in deep level five connection and friendship. And Marty said, Steve, I sense that there's some healing that you need to, to go through so you can be free. And it has to do with your dad. And Marty and Steve talked. And Steve decided that he'd reconcile with his dad by going. And he actually apologized to his dad for not being the best son possible, which is like one-eighth of one percent of the problem. But it initiated a relationship. And Steve was set free from bitterness and unforgiveness. And he could be free to be the man he was meant to be. Forgiveness does that for us. Uh, there's a principle in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. It basically means that we give ourselves grace and an excuse when we mess up, but we don't do that for others. We attribute when someone messes up to their character, and when we mess up, we attribute to the circumstances. When someone else succeeds, we attribute it to luck and circumstances. When we succeed, we say it's our character. We're, we're deserving. We earned this. That's a human flaw. We need to accept God's forgiveness and forgive others and get out of that fundamental attribution error. Humility heals. And if it doesn't heal a relationship, it'll heal your soul so you're not trapped in the past by the emotions of that relationship. Humility is also strong. And you could flip that equation and say strong is humble. Strong is humble, and that's a paradox in today's world. But no one's ever been as humble as Jesus, and he was also the strongest ever. There's this paradox of, of pride and humility. Humility heals relationships. Pride divides. Pride separates us and them. Racism, discrimination prejudice. That all goes back to pride that divides. God made us all in his image. There's talent and gifting, and we need each other. Humility will bring that about. It will heal, but pride will divide. Pride also blinds. Gosh, we see it left and right. It's blinded me plenty of times to my errors, but in some intense cases, gosh, President Clinton he did some such dumb things um, for a leader of the free world. 
but it was pride that thought he might be able to get away with something that didn't make sense because he was important. Or Tiger Woods, who had the world at his fingertips in, as far as golf and fame and success, but did some super unfaithful and unwise things that messed up his marriage and his reputation. Uh, why? Pride, because the world had puffed these guys up. And I don't think you or I would have done necessarily all that much better if we got puffed up to that degree. Bernie Madoff, pride that he's making millions of dollars in the biggest Ponzi scheme. I can get away with it. I've gotten away with it before. It just got worse. Christians have this problem. Christian leaders, Christian speakers. Um, Ravi Zacharias, very, very, very intelligent Bible teacher, but he had a secret area of his life due to no friendship, which probably had to do with pride that said, I can't let my stuff be known because then I'll be embarrassed. And maybe I don't need it. I don't know his heart, but I've got all my problems that my pride creates. And so do you. Pride blinds us. And that's why we need honest, consistent, open, transparent friendships so that we can see the real us, process it, and be set free. And of course, confessing to God is the central part. My friend Don Wallace that came on my Welcome to Manhood trips with the boys, when they turned um, 18, I took them on these cool trips to usher them into manhood, tell stories. And uh, Don was a fighter pilot, and he told stories about how they trained pilots to handle hypotoxic hypoxia. That's basically oxygen deprivation. If they lose pressurization and oxygen when they're flying a fighter jet, uh, they're going to lose consciousness within a certain amount of time. And they used to train them in an uh, oxygen chamber where they would turn down the oxygen slowly as two uh, of these pilots would be sitting in chairs playing patty cake or some other game. And next to them, they had a mask connected to an oxygen tank, but it was macho to wait as long as you could to put the mask on. And as they turned down the oxygen, these guys' brains would start to go fuzzy with deprivation of oxygen, and they'd spaz out on the patty cake game, but they wouldn't grab the mask because they wanted to win, pride. And then, of course, they'd turn up the oxygen and save them, but they, sh they showed them the videotape of the effects of hypotoxic hypoxia. My friend Don actually had it happen in a plane one time. He was doing a dogfight. His training commander said, Don, turn in. Don didn't turn in. He was two miles apart, just kept on flying his jet. The commanding officer in the other plane said, Don, turn in. Turn in. And then he realized, Don probably is losing oxygen. Sure enough, Don had been kind of a, a cocky pilot flying without his mask on, trusting that the oxygen in the cockpit would do the trick, but he was losing oxygen. And so his commanding officer said, Don, put your mask on now. Obviously, Don was alive to tell the story. So he had grabbed the mask and put it on. And the oxygen brought him to his senses. And he said to my son Colby and all of us dudes, you need a close, courageous, honest brother to call you on your crap and to let you know when pride is blinding you. That's why you need deep level five friendship. Humility is strong. Pride is weak. True strength benefits others. That's the kind of strength Jesus had. It benefits others, not just self. Um, I was fly fishing in Montana, leading a group of guys. It was kind of a men retreat thing, but fly fishing was part of the fun part of it. Not that it wasn't all fun. And uh, our guy was, a, stud of a guy, Jordan. He'd been an army ranger and done 11 years, multiple tours, 
seen buddies die, had jumped out of his Humvee when a friend got shot and dragged him 200 yards through a ditch back to the medics, chose to be the one to go tell the guy's wife that he had passed away because he was responsible. Uh, he was outrageously courageous. He was a great fishing guide. He took care of everything for us. And I said, dude, how could you do what you did over there? He said, well, we reckoned ourselves dead before we even went on the mission, which is why it was hard for our wives sometimes because we were distancing emotionally, imagining that we weren't going to come back. And by reckoning ourselves dead, we then were free to focus on the mission, to defend our brothers, to do whatever it took. That kind of made me think of the, the passage um, that Paul wrote. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you die to your self-will, God's going to put a better will in you. Not an easy one, but a better one. Jordan lived that way militarily. And then I said, dude, did you ever get any counseling when you came home? He said, no, I quit the military because I knew my emotions were shutting down. I wasn't going to be much of a dad or husband. Um, I said, did you go to therapy? He said, no, the river's my therapy. I don't think the river is his therapy. I think it's the guiding that is his therapy. He is so active and engaged at serving other men to give them a great fly fishing experience all day long, pouring himself out for us. The humble one is serving in a strong way to make our day great from driving us, getting the licenses, lunch, paddling extra fast to get my hat, which I dropped in the water and he went downstream to get it, pulling the snags out of the bushes. I even let, put a fly in my friend's cheek and he delicately pulled that out. Serving others frees you up from a lot of your pride and your wounding and your pain. That's the model of Jesus. True strength benefits others. Could we be like that for our wives? Instead of thinking, what, what am I going to get from my wife? What's she going to do for me? How's the equation? 50-50. I think Jesus was 100, 100 all in. I think that's the model of being a husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church or father or son or daughter out of the grace and love and sacrifice and humility of the Heavenly Father. C.S. Lewis said that humility is thinking of ourself less, not thinking less of ourself. We don't denigrate ourselves. We think accurately. God made me, I'm valuable, but I'm deeply flawed and I need Him, and I'm supposed to focus on others. It's self-forgetfulness when it comes to priority of who gets served first to get the biggest stake or whatever. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. This is the one spot where Jesus described himself. And what did he choose to say? I am gentle and lowly, humble and gentle at heart. And then he said, you'll find rest for your souls in me. Matthew 5, 5 says, God blesses those who are humble and meek. They're going to inherit the whole earth. Humility is actually an answer to our insecurity. And I know that we all have our own forms of insecurity. Um, it's basically, like, what are they thinking of me? What are the people thinking of me at work? What are they thinking of me? Remember the junior high lunchroom? What are they thinking of me? Online, what are they thinking of me? You know what's more important? What does Abba think about me? What do they think about me, or what does Abba think about me? 
Once you center on that, you're set free to be the real you. The fear of looking like a failure in the eyes of other people causes us to fail. It leads us down the wrong road. One of those ways is the way that pride can sometimes not make us brag and look like we're something great puffing ourselves up, but it can make us not ask for help. Like, I'm a Lone Ranger, I can handle this. I wouldn't want to ask for help. I don't want to let them know what I'm going through now. I have a friend who's not with us anymore. Uh, my roommate, offensive center on the Seahawks, great friend and guy, Grant Fiesel, believer in God, um, a guy who stayed away from vices and alcohol and stuff like that. Uh, but he was insecure when it came to pro football and what he thought the coaches were thinking of him, that they were always watching, and he was on the bubble and could get cut at any moment. It made him super insecure. I asked him to, to snap bad snaps for field goals and extra points to me sometime, you know, high ones, low ones, in my body. And he wouldn't do it because he said, oh, Jeff, they're always watching. They have cameras on the roof. He, he was paranoid. He didn't want to appear weak. And when it came to some of the brain trauma that showed up later in life, damaging his medical sales career and his family and his relationships, um, he started pain killing with a hidden mixture of vodka and something else. He wasn't even a drinker, but he was self-medicating. Um, he had some CTE and a ton of body um, aches and pains like a lot of the older players, especially linemen that lay down their bodies for quarterbacks and running backs. And uh, basically the alcohol ate him up. His brother tried to save his life. His wife had tried to save him, but he couldn't humble himself enough to receive the true help and face the reality, ending up letting alcohol destroy his body, and he passed away. And I'm not saying any of this to criticize him. There are challenging stories in all of us, but it's a form of pride that won't ask for help. We need to get over that. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of a man, which means the fear of what people think of us, lays a snare, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. 28.26 says, those who trust in their own insight are foolish, but anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. Tim Keller explained the Christian gospel in a, in a great way. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, but I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and, and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, but I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less, as C.S. Lewis said. So if you and I want to kill the fear of what people think of us and some of the pretending or hiding that comes from it, we need to focus on the permanent acceptance of God being adopted as his son, which will eliminate the performing the pretending. <laughs> I love the mountain bike in the summertime when it's too hot uh, in Little Rock. And my wife warned me one day when I went mountain biking, I know you're going to want to jump in the pool afterwards, but the neighborhood pool is closed. Please don't jump over the fence like you have before. Um, I don't want you to get caught and lose our membership privileges for the whole family that was staying in town with us that week. And sure enough, I rode, got hot, thought I can sneak in the pool quick. Uh, snuck my bike, put it in the bushes, climbed over, jumped in the deep end up to my neck, cooled off, 
And then as I was walking out, you know, little sneaky Jeff, uh, some alarm must have caught me, a camera or something, and this alarm go, beep, beep, beep. And now I'm hopping over the fence, jumping on my bike, hoping no one's looking, ride home, and hoping Stacy didn't hear the alarm, nor the police or the neighborhood security people. And I get home and no one seems to know. So I literally kept that a secret for over a year because I didn't want her to think of me as such a compromising, selfish schmuck. Um, even though I know she loves me and I could overcome that moment of embarrassment, I eventually, with some time I spent with God, realized this is stupid. I'm going to tell the story. And I did, and she didn't divorce me. Um, didn't throw me under, over the, under the bus, but it is a story my family has laughed about. And it reminds me that I can't sneak around in fear and pretending. I got to be straight up and honest. I'm already not perfect, so I might as well admit it. I need to trust God's view of me, not worry about what people think of me. Remember King David? Man, he lusted after Bathsheba. He stole Bathsheba. He slept with her and had adultery with Bathsheba. Then he tried to cover it up and make it look like her husband got her pregnant, but he was too honorable. He came home from the war and wouldn't sleep with his wife because his soldiers were in the field. And then David framed the guy on the front lines and let him get killed while the other soldiers pulled back. Basically, David murdered the guy and stole his wife. This is a guy who's called a man after my own heart, God said. But that's because David eventually faced the truth and fully repented. It took him a while to do so, but he fully did. David was a very good repenter and not afraid to face the truth and depend upon what God said about him. I have a friend that got caught um, watching porn in a hotel room. His wife walked in and he was embarrassed, repentant, viewed it as a chance to kind of get out of this habit he'd fallen into, but wondered if his wife would even take him back. And uh, she ended up making breakfast for him the next day, not saying a word, just treating him wonderfully and graciously. And that kindness and grace made him kind of feel God's grace. And he fully apologized to her, told her the problem he had, said he's going to get accountable to it, talked to the guys about it, uh, became connected to some other mentors and other friends, and asked God to heal him of it. And he got out of it because he totally faced the truth and didn't want to pretend anymore. I want to ask you, are you making courageous effort to be honest with yourself and with one or two trusted and good friends? Maybe you need to build a trusted and close friend to have this type of conversation with. There's an antidote to lying. The antidote to lying is to correct yourself on the spot as quickly as you can. Here's another question. Which approach to life is closer to the way you live? Okay? Which approach to life marks me and the way I live? A, I own my life and I'm aiming for satisfaction here and now. B, I control my life, but I want God to help me. I believe in God. I, I want his help. C, my father owns me. Jesus is my satisfaction. I'm becoming more and more like him. And I'm living for an eternal purpose because God owns me. Obviously, the third one 
is the free, strong, God-confident, life and relationship improving way to live. But I'm not telling you that this is something you need to perform because you can't and I can't. It's something that we receive, just like Jesus received from the Father. Again, Proverbs 28, 26, those who trust in their own insight, that means the way you see the world, the way you think things through, the way you feel it should be, what you plan to do, your own insights, your own secret counsel you give to yourself, not wanting to disclose to anyone what you're going to do before you do it, in case they don't approve. Those own insights of yours are foolish. But anyone who walks in wisdom, and Jesus is described as wisdom throughout the scriptures, walking in Jesus, walking in God, walking in his word, walking in wisdom, that's the safe way. Guys, manhood is not self-propelled. It's not based on self-confidence. It's God-confidence, which based in your identity as a son and receiving not just your identity, not just your blueprints for manhood, but your minute-to-minute-to-minute guidance, the words you're to say, the actions you're to do, the actions you're not to do, the attitude of your heart, the apology, the forgiveness, the courageous, bold action, the sacrificial, generous thing. Everything you do is meant to be received in a constant download from the Father. The Bible helps especially if you're reading it as a son asking your dad. Close friends help, especially if they're deep level five friends that are honest about the most important stuff in your life, praying for each other, processing what's happened in the past and what's going to happen this next week. That'll bring God confidence. Next session, we're going to um, jump into this type of friendship, level five friendship. I drew that from Jim Collins, good to great. Um, it's way deeper than the typical friendship we see or have experienced. I call it huddling. And we'll talk about living in God's word, in the game plan laid out here. How do we make this thing real? So let me pray. God, uh, we can't change ourselves, but you can change and transform us. Please do so. Make us more like Jesus. Um, help us get a new set of software, the intake we take, the Bible, what's true, noble, pure, excellent, worthy of praise. Help us focus on that stuff and not all the external stuff that's not true or is very comparative or very competitive or maybe even poison and counterfeit. Transform us, God, to be more and more like Jesus and to live as dependent sons receiving from him. Amen. Guys, live by receiving and begin each morning, starting with tomorrow morning or right now as a son. Start your day as a son.